Almighty God, the Father of all wisdom, who knowest our necessities before we ask and our ignorance in asking, we beseech thee to have compassion upon our infirmities and those things which for our unworthiness we dare not and for our blindness we cannot ask, vouchsafe to give to us for the worthiness of thy Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, you have entered into a discussion on life of faith between the already and not yet of First and Second Thessalonians. So I've given out a number of verses that we will um, just get to hear from to get a flavor of Paul's theology of um, how to live as we await and anticipate Christ's return. Um, so Thessalonians is a letter, uh, first and second, two letters to the church at Thessalonica. Uh, it's, it's not apocalyptic in nature, but it does talk about anticipating Christ's return. And I thought this is, this is important, as, not only as a doctrine for the church, but for us living in our times. Um, so many times throughout history, people have been thinking and pointing to when is Christ's return going to happen? When is his kingdom going to be finally fully established? And... Uh, and so I think it's a question not only for the church, but for uh, living in our culture, uh, for us. And the Thessalonians, they had a lot of anxiety over this idea of Christ's return. Um, that there was, um, they had looked for this age to come, and in fact some of them had fallen asleep. Some of them had died. And they were wondering, what does this mean? Because Paul preached with a sense of urgency that this, this was an impending reality that Christ was going to come back for his own. Um, so, so I just want to give a little bit of brief background information for us on, on the, the occasions for these two letters, just to help give us some context. Um, so Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, he had just parted ways with Barnabas over the issue of John Mark, and so whether or not he was to be brought along, and so Paul, he chose to bring Silas with him, and he uh, went up through Turkey and across to Greece, and so he ends up, and we find the account actually in Acts 17, where um, there are Jews and God-fearing Greeks and prominent women, and uh, Paul did what he did in his ministry. He went into the synagogue and began preaching about the resurrected Christ. And uh, the civic leaders, uh, they caught wind of this, and it, people got into an uproar. Paul tended to stir the pot wherever he went. It went. And uh, so there was an outbreak of a mob in Thessalonica, and actually Paul and Silas had to slip away during the middle of the night just to get out with their lives. And then they headed down to the coast, down towards Athens, where Paul later preaches his famous um, interaction with the philosophers at Mars Hill. Um, now, in Thessalonica, uh, there, were, um, there were a lot of different cults. There was some syncretism of the Jewish faith, both for those who were Jews by birth and heritage and those that had converted to Judaism. And so there were a lot of other religious ideas being mixed in as well. There were uh, traditional Greek cults, uh, philosophic traditions, mystery religions. There was emperor worship for the Roman emperor, um, and even a sanctuary to the Egyptians' gods of Isis and Osiris. Or Osiris, yes. Um, and there was even a local cult to a person named Cabernus. 
Um, Cabernus was actually, he was a murdered local hero and was thought to and presumed to be ready to return periodically to uh, Thessalonica. Um, Thessalonica is just 50 miles from Mount Olympus, which you probably know is the site of the, many of the myths and legends of the Greek gods uh, that took place around that area. So they were, they were well versed in the idea of spirituality. And, um, but this church was founded in a lot of turmoil and uh, dissent as it caused quite a stir. Um, would somebody uh, read 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9? This talks yes, about... Um, go ahead. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living yeah, they, 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 they responded to the gospel and sought to serve the one true God that Paul had preached to them, but they had to turn from idols in order to do that. Um, he was calling them away from these other um, religions into this new, um, or relatively new, following of Christ. And so um, that, that forced a lot of uh, persecution, actually, on the church there in Thessalonica, where they, they, this was born in, um, in a lot of turmoil. Now, um, it, Paul mentions that he actually sends Timothy from Athens. So would somebody read 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 and 2? Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Yeah, so, so there, there's this sense of affliction and persecution going on, and Paul, because he had gone on to Athens, um, he decided to send Timothy to just check in and see how this new congregation is uh, being nurtured and cared for in the midst of controversy. Uh, this was... Written, 1 Thessalonians was written about 50 AD. Uh, so it was one of Paul's earlier letters, actually, uh, to congregations. Now, so why did Paul write to them? Uh, I think there's probably just two primary reasons that jump out as, as you read Thessalonians. Uh, the first being this issue of persecution. And we'll get more into that um, in two weeks. Stephen's teaching in here next week, is that right? And then, or somebody's teaching in here next week, and then I'll be teaching the following week. So we'll have a little gap. Um, to anticipate. Um, and, but the second one is this question of Christ's return and the implications for that. So, um, so first on the idea of persecution, there's a couple passages I passed out. So who has 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 8? All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, he's offering a little bit of hope. I know that sounds kind of like vengeful stuff. You know, God will visit upon your enemies. Um, but that was actually a source of great hope for these people who were undergoing persecution themselves, that all that's wrong will be righted 
that God is powerful enough to defend and protect them and uh, carry forth um, his ministry among them. So um, who has Second Thessalonians 2, 14 through 17? He, call, he called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teaching he passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. Encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Yeah, so, you know, he's, he's really, that's, that idea of standing firm we'll be looking at in two weeks a lot more in depth. But he was trying to give them something to anchor themselves to so that they weren't just um, carried um, to and from by false teaching and by the persecution that they're undergoing. Um, all right, and then there's First Thessalonians 2, 1 and 2. you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain, for though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of such conflict. Yeah, I mean, he's referring to when he when he came and stirred up quite a storm, and uh, that's when the church took root there. So um, he's trying to seeking to encourage them in the midst of persecution. And the second thing, the question of Christ's return was very prominent for the Thessalonians. So 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Oh, Alright, I can go to the next one. There's 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Uh, brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Yeah, so, so clearly... Some had had passed on. They didn't live to see Christ's return. And so there was some anxiety among the people of, well, what does this mean? Um, You know, that somebody has actually died before Christ has come back. It it brought up great anxiety for them. Go ahead, Charles. Do you have one, two? Yes. And to wait for his son from heaven and be raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath. Yeah, so, so there is this anticipation. Christ is going to come again and deliver us from uh, the wrath that he's also going to bring on his enemies um, that we will find final salvation in. So, so there was this question of, are we left behind? <laughs> are, are we missing out on something? Um, is God not true to his promise? There, there was also seemed to be some reports that perhaps the Lord had already returned, and somehow they had missed it. And... Paul, Paul in Second Thessalonians goes on to talk about this man of lawlessness, this this figure that hey hey first some things have to happen before he comes back. Um, so he's trying to calm their fears around this idea. But but there's many questions and fears and hopes that they had around Christ's return, and and the same's true I suspect for us today, um, where we have questions and concerns and even fears about is Christ coming back? When is he coming back? What does it mean to live now as we anticipate this, um, as we look for this? Sometimes his coming seems so far and distant in our minds, and we wonder, are we just left here to flounder in our faith? And Paul's trying to answer that question for us to provide us a sense of stability, of security, something we can anchor ourselves to in the midst of anticipating 
Now, some of the Thessalonians, they felt, in addition, that some of their present sufferings were perhaps related to the messianic woes that would accompany the day of the Lord, the Lord's coming. Um, they thought, well, maybe if we're being persecuted like this, it's a sign that uh, we're, we're experiencing not blessing in the gospel, but rather God's wrath and judgment. Um, and now someone or uh, people have died, and that's causing just distress for them. So that they had a nearness or an eminence to Jesus' return. You know, that's, but Paul's response here is very pastoral in nature. He has a firm conviction of Christ's bodily resurrection, therefore everyone else's assured bodily resurrection. And so he's responding to what theologians call an overheated uh, eschatology. Eschatology is just your view of the end times of Christ's return. And so it seems like they were overheated in this matter. They were, they were a little too eager, a little too anxious about this. And so since Christ has been raised, is Paul's point, we too, uh, or he, he is coming back. And so I want to I put a little illustration, because this was always helpful for me, for us about this idea of, of the day of the Lord. This was, a, this was in the Old Testament prophets, and Paul uses it himself in several places in his writings. Um, so, so there's the Jewish mind that they believed, and this was f- from God's revealed scripture to them, uh, was that th- there's two ages. There's um, this age. That's what we live in. Um, that This is full of death following Adam and Eve's fall. Uh, death and sin and destruction. Okay? This, is, this is ruin, um, living in this age. Paul talks about the powers and principalities of darkness of this present age. Okay? And, and, and then there was the anticipated age to come. Okay? This, this is when all would be made right, when God's wrath would be visited on his enemies, uh, when all who trust in him and are faithful to him will be vindicated, and all his glory and goodness evermore. Um, and so, so th- this, is, this is how the Jewish mind looked at it. And so there was a buildup in the Old Testament of there's going to be this point, we're going along in this present age, something's going to happen, the Messiah is going to come, um, he's going to come and restore that which is broken, and then it's going to put this age to come. It was going to be a very decided break. Uh, when Messiah comes, this is what's going to happen. And, and this is why even Jesus' own disciples were, were saying, Lord, is it now that you've come to restore your, ten- your kingdom? You know, the, the people wanted to t- take Jesus and make him king by force because they thought that was their idea of the mess- Messiah. Messiah would deliver them from all oppression. So it was very natural that they thought that. This is what was revealed to them. Um, Paul's helping to address something with this outlook, and that is uh, something new has happened in Christ's coming and death and resurrection. That's that, so we'll put this as the cross. This age has continued on a parallel track. This is still an age of death and destruction and sin and ruin and rebellion. However, Jesus has inaugurated the age to come. 
His resurrection signals that, it trumpets that, it heralds. The age to come is here, but it's here in part. Um, And so this is already Jesus has broken in, but we only get, uh, we're getting glimmers and pictures and pieces of it, but we don't have it in whole in its entirety. That's why we're still praying, thy kingdom come, uh, because it has not come in its fullness. We will know when it comes in its fullness, because this age will pass away. Um, all death and sin and destruction, brokenness, it will no longer hold reign like it does, even in our own day, 2,000 years after Christ's um, life, death, and resurrection. And so this is helpful to me to see that there, there was, for these new believers, um, a real anxiety that how has the age to come not happened? Paul's preached this message and we've believed it, and yet we see so much that is wrong. Um, does somebody have uh, Ephesians 1, 19-21? Paul couples this, these two things. He puts these two things together, this age and the age to come. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Yeah, not only this age, but also in the one to come. Christ is seated in the heavenly places in this age and in the age to come. Um, And so we are living now in light of the work Christ has done, in light of the Messiah and his victorious resurrection. Um, But we're situated precariously between the already of what he has done and the not yet of the fullness of the age to come. And so that's where we live in the church. We sit here, and this might not be news to any of you, but um, I think it's really a a helpful encouragement to us as we seek to live faithfully to... uh, to Christ and what he's called us to, um, especially with the difficulties that we face, um, both from within the church and outside the church. And there's a real danger for us in proclaiming the good news of Jesus and over-promising something, almost as though it's only the age to come that you enter into when you are converted to Christ, that when you trust Jesus for forgiveness of your sins, Life is wonderful, and it's all rosy and peachy, and uh, your problems will just melt away from you, you know. And there's a real danger in offering that because so many people grow cynical and jaded at, I tried that. Nothing was different. My life was still hard. It was full of hardship. I, I still struggled with sins. Um, and, and it was hard. And so... I think this is a helpful corrective to us to remember we don't want to overpromise. Neither do we want to underpromise. We don't want to say, well, it's just this age, as though Christ hasn't come and brought his kingdom um, for us to participate in. So that's the already and the not yet that we're having to live in. Um, okay, so 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. This is really a... a popular, famous passage from Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. Who had that one? This is a we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, which you may not grieve as others do, who have no hope. Since you believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. 
the nephew declared to me by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not perceive those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together and then in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Um, thank you. That That is a passage that we could spend these two weeks just dissecting that. And uh, there's so much there. And th- this has become a popular um, you know, rapture passage for the church being swept away from earth before the final judgment and things like that. Um, being popularized in the Left Behind series and things, things of that nature. Um, I th- it's very pastoral that he says we don't sorrow as those without, who have no hope. Um, I think that, that's really important as Christians. He's not saying we can't sorrow and we can't grieve. There's plenty to sorrow and grieve. In fact, that probably increases when you become a believer who trusts Jesus. It doesn't, doesn't get easier. But there's a hopefulness to it because you know Christ is coming back. You know his kingdom will not be thwarted. The gates of hell won't overcome it. Um, so, so we grieve, but not as those who are hopeless. Um, in this, in, there's so much in this. He, he references those who have been a, fallen asleep. Um, just like Jesus called Lazarus asleep and Jairus' daughter, who he raised from the dead, asleep, you know, and they laughed at him. He said, no, she's just asleep. And then he says, little girl, get up. Um, sleep was a way of talking about death. And, and so Paul's saying, hey, the, the, don't, don't fret and worry about those who have gone to sleep because they're actually going to be raised up when the Lord comes with these trumpets and the announcement. You're going to be gathered together with them. Again, they are asleep. They are with the Lord. They're, as Paul says in another place, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so there's, there's real hope that you still have in that. Um, now, it's also a reminder to us that Christianity isn't about escaping this world. It's not this, I can't wait till I'm here and then, boom, there's a rapture and, you know, I'm no longer here and I've been transported. Um, it's... It, Christianity isn't about escaping this world, but it's yearning to have this world renewed. And, and so Paul's language here of talking about being caught up in the clouds with Jesus at his return, it's not that we're going to be swept off um, and the earth's going to be vacant, but we're going out to meet him in order to return, in order for him to bring his kingdom fully to this earth as he renews this world. And so Jesus is the one who accompanies those who have already died and fallen asleep, and also we who are still alive when he returns together. Um, and so, so, so he uses a term um, in, in his writings, uh, parousia, which, which is it's like the arrival, the coming of Christ, um, talking about his return. And parousia, it's a word that's used for the arrival of a king or a high-ranking official who comes to visit people, to bring some sort of news. Um, it's also used of a military invasion in a country, um, an arrival. Like when they step foot there and they've conquered a new territory, it's the parousia. They, they, they have come. Um, it's a momentous event. And the Thessalonians, being not far from Mount Olympus, would know that it was also used of Greek gods, the visitation of 
of those from the, the deity world, so to speak. And, and Paul's borrowing language in this, which I find really interesting from the Old Testament. Um, so, so Exodus 19.16 and Psalm 47.5, get ready. This is, um, so that this is from the Old Testament that Paul's using this idea of the trumpets being sounded and the being caught up in the cloud of God's, God's glory. So Exodus uh, 19.16. <clears throat> God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Yeah, that, that's, they're at the base of Mount Sinai, and Moses has gone up, and, and there, there is, there is uh, he's caught up in the cloud. Um, who's got Psalm 47.5? Oh, sorry, you read Psalm 47.5, sorry. Who has the Exodus 19? Yeah, please. I'm sorry. On the morning of the third day, there was yeah. thunder and lightning. Yeah, sorry, that's when Moses has gone up. Everybody's fearful, um, and it's accompanied in both those places. There's, there's a trumpet blast, a loud announcement, and there's this cloud. And both those things appear here in 1 Thessalonians 4 as Paul's talking about Christ's return. Um, and so, so it's an idea of picturing Yahweh, God's enthronement on the temple, that he, he has come and he has, arri- he has arrived, and it's being announced. It's, it's, it's a summoning kind of language. When the, when the alarm goes off, you wake up. When the trumpet sounded, you pay attention, and you go, okay, something's happening in the kingdom. Something's happening in our realm. We need to go and attend to it. We have to go see. We're being summoned to him. Uh, we're being we're being called to join him in what he's doing, and and so, uh, so so there's this idea and image that we are going to be caught up with him in order to return into the city victoriously, just as a military or king official would have in the ancient world. People would have left where they where they are and left even the city and gone out to greet them, and then brought them and ushered them back into the city as 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 in a parade, a celebratory parade, uh, leading the way, ex- escorting, as it were, this king or this military conqueror into the place where he is known as the Lord, as the king. And that's the language we have in the New Testament of Christ's return, that his church will come up with him and we will return with him, celebrating his triumph. Jesus used this language in Matthew 24, 30 and 31. Listen to this. Who has that passage? Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Thanks. Yeah. Jesus saying, just as Daniel the prophet talks about the Son of Man, I'm going to return in that way, um, riding on the clouds. So there's this meeting, and I think in that there's a joining of heaven and earth. There's, there's God's kingdom coming in its, in its finality, in its fullness, in a way that we see inaugurated in Jesus' life and ministry and the continued announcement of the apostles' message but we don't see it completed yet. The job isn't done. He has not yet fully uh, brought his kingdom. And so we get to anticipate that. Um, Okay, 
So, so he's speaking to some anxiety in the church over this. And so who has 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 8? There's some events that have yet to happen, he says. And he talks about a man of lawlessness. Who has that? Do you have Second Thessalonians two, three through eight? Yes. I let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself, every so-called god or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now is that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and brings nothing by the appearance of his coming. Thank you. So, so he's saying, hey, hey, there's, there's going to be false reports and false teachings about this. But you're going to know this happens when this happens. When this man of lawlessness sets himself up in the temple, probably within, in the church, and in essence declares himself to be the sovereign lord and ruler. Um, and, um, you know, it's almost like a parody of who Jesus is. You know, that's described there, this man of lawlessness who, who comes with a, um, with a false teaching and he opposes God and he has signs and wonders even that probably um, accompany his so-called ministry. Um, but he'll proclaim himself as actually divine. And so, so you will know when that happens, Christ is coming back. Paul's trying to say, hey, it hasn't happened yet. And there's been people throughout the ages, throughout time, who have tried to pinpoint this character. Was this Nero, one of the Roman emperors? Was this the Pope? You know, who is this? Is, is this someone in our current day? Everybody's trying to figure that out. Uh, Paul's seeming to make it pretty clear, say that it, it's going to be fairly plain. Um, you're not going to have to do a Da Vinci Code to figure this thing out, you know. <laughs> that you're not going to have to add up all the numbers of the tribes of Israel and divide it by seven and do all, you know, you're not going to have to do a, a math equation to figure this out. Um, it, it's going to be relatively plain. Um, and so because some of the Thessalonians believed perhaps Jesus had returned, they thought, well, we're not going to get his promises, what he's promised, that his kingdom isn't for us. Um, but Christ's return and the, the idea of Longing for it is actually an opportunity for you and me. It's an opportunity for the Thessalonians that Paul was writing to to engage in the responsibilities and struggles of this life, to seek to remain faithful and holy, separated from from our sin and ways in the world to, as we await the Lord. Um, and, and we'll talk more about that in two weeks, about what that looks like and some of the instructions Paul has for us there. I think I just want to, by way of illustration, this idea that he's coming, but he hasn't yet come. Um, it's, it's like the difference between D-Day and V-Day in World War II. 
Um, you know, D-Day, that's landing at Normandy, right? The troops of the Allies had come. And that, anybody know the date of that relatively? June 6th, that's right, 1944. So the Allied troops were on the ground and they were advancing through enemy territory. It was a great momentous occasion because victory was at hand. Um, the world knew it. Uh, V-Day, however, Victory Day in Europe, it, that didn't happen until May 8th, 1945, almost a year later uh, when the Nazis offered their unconditional surrender. Their victory basically was won at D-Day. But it, it took almost a year before the final full surrender of the Nazis. And so th this, is, this is much like Christ um, coming to save us from our sin through the cross and resurrection. That's, that's D-Day. He landed at Normandy. He came uh, to redeem us and to restore us and to heal us. Um, and he provides that picture and a, um, and a foretaste of that there's more of that to come. And that will finally come with final salvation at V-Day, at the end of the war, when he returns with the trumpet blasts and the coming on a cloud. And so Paul follows that paragraph up um, when he talks about Christ's return. Encourage one another with these words. This is meant to be an encouragement. It's not meant to uh, confuse and confound us. It's meant to be a, a, a idea of you can press on and hope. You can rest and trust assured that this will happen. Um, and so he's, he's reminding them as he's reminding us to look for this day. And, and um, somebody has 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, and 3. This day will not come. It will come suddenly, rather. Who has this one? For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. People are saying peace and safety. Destruction will come on them suddenly. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to be sudden, like a thief, um, like, like, a, like the, pre the pains of a pregnancy. You know, they will just come all of a sudden, and uh, Christ, Christ's going to come like that. And he, he talks about that in his own ministry in the Gospels, um, you know, like a thief in the night. Um, one of my seminary professors, Reggie Kidd, ha offered an illustration about this. He, he was out at Yellowstone Park and, you know, looking at the different geysers, and there's this one geyser called Beehive. And Beehive had this thing uh, where it would have some sort of an indicator where it, it's, not, it's not fully gushing and going, but some things would happen around Beehive, and that would be this indicator, hey, in about 20 minutes, Beehive's going to go off. And so when that would happen, the park ranger would get on the intercom at the park and say, hey, Beehive is you know, about to blow in 20 minutes or less. We've got the indicator. So everybody would rush over to where Beehive was, and they'd be able to watch as this geyser goes off, you know, and all the water and steam come up. And it was just a really great sight, he said. Well, you know, Jesus' resurrection is that indicator before the geyser goes off for us. Remembering that Jesus was raised from the dead, that he has ascended to the right hand of God the Father, and he, is, and he said, I'm coming back. Um, he's coming back, so we've got the indicator already. Uh, we're just waiting for the, the whole thing to blow, so to speak. And we get to live in the meantime, between then, almost on that intercom telling people through, through the pronouncement and the proclamation of the gospel, through sharing and reminding one another in our homes, in our places of work, among our friends, among those who we socialize with, 
this, this is what we're promised. This is the good news about Jesus. This is the good news about living life to the fullest here and now because we're anticipating so much more to come. So you can help people in, endure hardship and difficulty. You can struggle against your own um, proclivities to sinful habits because of Christ's resurrection. Um, he, and he's promised he is coming back for his own. And there is a sense of that word in in First Thessalonians. The last verse I wanted us to read is First Thessalonians one eight. Yeah, your word has gone forth. It's been trumpeted aloud that even Paul down in Athens had heard about their faith. And he's saying, continue in that. Live this thing out. Sharing this good news. Sharing this message of the resurrection, of the final resurrection at the last day. John Stott puts it this way. This is the last thing. He shows how the gospel creates the church and the church spreads the gospel and how the gospel shapes the church as the church seeks to live a life worthy of the gospel. And that's what we'll talk about in two weeks, if you dare to come back, um, about Paul's instructions for this life, how to live faithfully um, in, the, in between the already and the not yet. So, any comments, questions, thoughts you'd like to share? Um, you had mentioned that when Christ comes back and were he to come back in our life, and we would meet him and then come back. It's not that I don't want to come back. But um, I've never heard that before. Is that an interpretation of some of those verses you referred to, or is that explicitly said? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's, that's the overall arc of Scripture, is talking about redeeming this broken world. Redeeming everything in Genesis 1 that God created, what did he say after he created each thing? It is good. Creation and everything is fundamentally good, inherently good. However, we, we also have Genesis 3, don't we? the fall. Everything has fallen into sin and decay. Um, And that's what God's rescue plan has been about. It's been about redeeming a people for himself in in his good creation. And so he he is going to remake the heavens and the earth. Um, There's several references in in Peter and um, about it's, it's about the renewed heavens and earth. It's not that we're swept away into heaven. Um, it's that, in a sense, heaven and earth are joined together. And, and a lot of this uh, teaching, it's been renewed, I would say, in, in recent years through in Tom Wright, um, N.T. Wright. Um, some of his, uh, one of his books that I found really um, helpful um, thinking about these, these ideas was Surprised by Hope, which is a Tom Wright book. But um, Mark Genelette would probably be more qualified to speak to those issues, so you can ask him afterwards. <laughs> Great question. Well, thanks for your attentiveness and for a willingness to read a lot of scripture. And uh, let, let me pray for us. Grant, we beseech thee, Almighty God, that the words which we have heard this day with our outward ears may through thy grace be so grafted inwardly in our hearts that they may bring forth in us the fruit of good living and the honor and praise of thy name through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.